Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring your sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you this week. First of two shows, once again, we have another Mets interview coming up today. I'm going to be speaking with Justin Toscano, the Mets beat reporter for the record. We're going to talk about more about the Mets. They are definitely a more interesting team this offseason. A lot of stuff going on. We'll talk to Justin about his thoughts in just a bit. We're also going to include our recap of The Mandalorian in this episode. I'm going to be joined by my good buddy, Nick Frietta. We're going to break down episode six of season two, talk about all we learned this far. Short episode so this year, but... Sets up nicely for the final stretch of the next couple of weeks. But we'll get all started with the opening tip. We're going to talk about Adam Gase and why, for some reason, the Jets still think he should deserve the job right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here. Opening tip time. Podcast driving for you on Sunday morning as the 0-11 New York Jets get ready to host the Las Vegas Raiders. Again, they probably should get killed in. I picked the Raiders to cover the spread this week. Raiders got blown out last week in Atlanta. You figure they come back with a vengeance this week. The Jets are 0-11, most likely to be 0-12. And then the schedule gets brutal the rest of the way. I mean, after this, they have the two-game trip out west to Seattle and Los Angeles. They have the Browns coming in, 8-3 and three Browns at this point, likely going to the playoffs. The Patriots last week of the season. 0-16, not out of the question. The question you do need to ask, though, why the heck does Adam Gase still have a job? And this is not like all these teams are being gun-shy because of the COVID pandemic. We've already had a bunch of coaches fired already. Bill O'Brien lost his job in Houston earlier this year. Dan Quinn in Atlanta. Detroit cleaned house after Thanksgiving. Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn both let go. Even the Jags, you know, Doug Brown stole the job at this point. They fired GM Dave Caldwell. Yet, 0-11, Adam Gase still has his job. He's 7-20 and right now as the Jets head coach. He loses by double digits all the time. And now he's basically playing some sh- weird kind of shell game with the play calling. And remember, back when this team's 0-5, 0-6, and it was not as bad as it is right now, we were saying, okay, maybe, you know, why don't you try giving out the play calling? Because that shares something. We heard back then that Adam Gase decided to get a play calling the Dowell Loggins to try and shake things up. And the Jets' offense did start to play a little better. You know, I get it partially to Loggins, partially to Joe Flacco. They scored 55 points against the Chargers and the Patriots, lost by a combined nine points. So you figure if you're actually trying to win, keep going that direction. Now, we go to week 11 last week against the Dolphins. Sam Darrell is back. You figure, okay. He's back. He's got his healthy weapons. That's the boy line we've been told for several weeks. You're great. The offense is going to take off again. They scored just three points. And the CBS broadcast, several points, show us Dow Watkins, who is supposedly the play caller, just chatting with other coaches without the play sheet. Adam Gase has the play sheet. We know what that means. Adam Gase is calling the plays again. Naturalist gets asked about after the game. ESPN's Rich Samini, the Jet Beat reporter for the team, Basically says, hey, 
Why are you calling the place? And I do have a clip of this on the press conference. It's actually pretty gold. I want, I want you to listen to this, then we're going to react to it. I didn't take over. We did this. We've done the same thing in the last four games. We, we were watching Dowell through the whole game. He wasn't doing anything. I mean, he was just standing there. He, he tells me it's not hard. This is not hard. We go through it, the drive before. Hey, these are the three plays. I do the third downs. So what happens after the three plays when you have a series? Because we were watching one where Dow was talking to Frank Pollock. He wasn't calling the plays you were. What part of the game was it? I want to say that was the third quarter. Yeah, when we got down, then I, I was trying to do some of the two-minute stuff. A couple of things stick out here from that clip. Number one, you hear the defiance Adam Gay starts with, and then his voice just drops when Rissimidi calls him out of the fact he can't dispute. And basically, he admits, yeah, I was calling the plays in some situations. And this is just feel like too many cooks in the kitchen here. How many different guys need to call the offensive plays? If you did not want to give it up, don't give it up. Don't give us this fantasy that Dow Lock is running the entire offense and you've been involved the whole time. And the next day, of course, Adam Gaze doubled down the stupidity. This is brilliant note came from Connor Hughes, the athletic, the Jets beat reporter for them. This is from Connor Hughes' Twitter account. Gay said the play calling is a quote-unquote collaborative effort. He and Dowell both call plays in different situations. Gay doesn't want to provide specifics for who calls what when because it can give opponents a quote-unquote competitive advantage. Let me get this straight. We are supposed to believe that the New York Jets, who have not won a football game since January, are doing cloak and dagger play calling to gain a competitive advantage. This offense has the least yardage in the league per game, the least passing yards per game, the least points per game. They're gaining a competitive advantage by alternating who calls the plays in Adam Gase and Dallas Logan. Really? Again, this team is doing so well, so brilliantly offensively, that they can't get with a trade seeker who's calling the plays when because it's a quote-unquote, competitive advantage. What the hell's going on out here? I'll tell you what's going on right here. To me, this again just demonstrates that Adam Gase is a micromanager. He cannot lead well enough along with Dow Loggins. Adam Gase wants the credit when the offense goes well. So, you know what? I got to get my hands on the play calling. The quarterback is back. I got to get involved with this. But if things go badly, oh, Dow Loggins is calling the plays. I'm not involved. It is never Adam Gase's fault when something goes wrong. Never. And it drives me insane. He is, right now, the biggest reason he's in games. And I get the argument. Okay, you want Trevor Lawrence here. You want the number one pick. Keeping Adam Gase around does that because they're not winning games if you fire. Maybe, you know, they get more expired, more competent with somebody else coaching and win the games. Again, look at that jet schedule. Where is the win coming from? They are not winning a road game. They are horrendous on the road. They still have three of those. Are they beating the Raiders t- today? No. Are they beating the Are they beating the Browns in Week 16 at home? I don't think so. At what point do you think okay, Greg Williams coaching the team is going to win a game, or Dowell Watkins being the coach is going to win the game? Is that really going to change anything? I don't think so. This team suddenly going to become magically competent against four playoff teams, the Patriots, on the road? 
Put the man out of his misery and stop this nonsense. Send a signal to the rest of the league that you're not going to tolerate this mediocrity and this BS. Enough of the excuses. I don't want to hear any more of the wanting, oh, this is why we're bad. This, we have injuries. Players didn't execute. Accountability needs to win the end of the day here. And I think part of the reason why is because the Jets have had no fans in the building because of the pandemic. Christopher Johnson does not have to hear all the fans booing, screaming fire, gaze, fire, gaze with all the signs and the bags on their heads. So he can live in his little fantasy world and things will be okay. Stop the nonsense. Get rid of him. You do not have to wait till the end of the season for this. You want to quietly do it on the West Coast when you're in between the two games? Go ahead, but just get rid of him. Stop wasting our time here. Try and move the organization forward a little bit. Enough about this awful football team. Let's go to a team with a little hope. We'll talk about the Mets with Justin Toscano right after this. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies. Bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life. Because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over. I am back here on the podcast talking more Mets today, joined today by the Mets beat reporter for the record, NorthJersey.com. Justin Toscano is with me. Justin, how are you? How's it going, Mike? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on, man. Not a problem. And I got to say, it's definitely an interesting experience now watching the Mets operate under Steve Cohen. And as somebody who's covered this team for a couple of years now, what's the big difference you've noticed so far from last year, this year? Going, uh, I think Trevor May said it best when he was talking to reporters on Zoom yesterday. They, in his situation, he expected, you know, a lot of teams in free agency, a lot of toes to be dipped in the water, and that's what he was seeing. But he was pleasantly surprised, as he put it, that the Mets went kind of waist deep in that water. And I think that's the the biggest change is that, you know, even though they, they couldn't hire a top baseball executive and, and they're still searching for a GM, they've at least been seemingly pretty aggressive with these things. Um, even at the introductory press conference, God, that was November 6th. Sandy Alderson, the, the new team president, had already said, you know, he'd been talking to, to agents and free agents and, and having those conversations, and the Mets have had them since, obviously. So I think it's in this market especially, I think, um, you know, under the Wilpons, the Mets would have been one of those teams kind of kind of on the back burner, kind of waiting it out to, to see – maybe what the market looked like. So they, they didn't need to spend a ton, but it seems like Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson, but more because of Steve Cohen's vision, they're, they've been pretty aggressive in, in trying to take advantage of, of kind of a slower year and, and really get the ball rolling in, in the first year of, of his ownership. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Obviously, it excites the fan base. The team's got more possibilities, and, and it really seems like kind of a new era of Mets baseball as cliche as that sounds but but I think that's the biggest difference is that you're seeing them push the envelope to, to use another cliche and then kind of be a little more aggressive with these things and and try to, to think outside of the box so they can put together the best sustainable winner that they can in, in this first year to, to get the ball rolling yeah absolutely true and you mentioned Trevor May who talked to reporters we're, we're recording on Friday you guys talked to him yesterday and what was your reaction to them signing Trevor May? Because I feel like that's an aggressive move. And I feel like last offseason, like, okay, they signed Trevor May. Now what for the rest of the winter? Now it feels like the first move of many. 
Right, right. It really does. My reaction was, you know, I was kind of surprised that it came so early because even though the winter meetings, you know, everybody's not going to be roaming around a hotel lobby and it's going to be virtual, I figured that would kind of signify the the hot stove season kind of heating up a little more. But the fact that the Mets, you know, were were this quick and then pouncing on him and then getting pretty serious with him, it, it kind of did surprise me. But then, you know, like it, it's, to me, it's a good sign of, of the new ownership's capabilities and then kind of, you know, not worrying about that. You know, like you would mentioned, like we were just talking about, under the Wilpons, I mean, I think you would have looked at the Marcus Stroman qualifying offer. If he accepted, and you would have been like, well, there's pretty much the entire winner there. So the fact that the Mets got in, you know, pretty serious and interested talks with, with May early um, was surprising, but a good sign because, I mean, that's a guy who – since he had Tommy John, since returning from that in 2018, he's been really good. His ERA has been, you know, a hair above three combined over the last three seasons. Um, got a great fastball slider combo, ditch, ditch the curveball. Um, but it, that's, that's a good reliever that when you're talking about the Mets bullpen, I mean, gosh, it wasn't perfect last year, but considering how bad the rotation was, I think the bullpen is, you know, it's fair to see them as, as kind of a team strength last year. And so the fact that the Mets were still not going to rest on those laurels, not going to ignore kind of bolstering and rebuilding and retooling this bullpen, um, I think that's another great sign. So that was probably my long-winded way of saying my immediate reaction was just that I, I, I was surprised, but I think it signifies that they really are intent on building a winner because bullpen – that wasn't one of their top two needs. That might not even be a top three need. I mean, if we're looking at position wise. Um, so the fact that they're willing to still upgrade there and to do so for two years, you know, and then about 15 and a half million, like I think that's, that's a great sign that, you know, they're looking to make this, this a well-rounded thing and a good sign as you alluded to that, Hey, you know, the winter is just getting started. Yeah. Cause I feel like in the past, a lot, especially in the Wilpon years, there's a lot of, okay, Met fans talk themselves into, well, if Todd Frazier is good and if these guys were all healthy, it's a lot of ifs that Brody Wagon couldn't eliminate. It was sort of like, okay, if all goes well, this team is on pace with about 85 games, and if we're in at the deadline, we upgrade, otherwise we sell. But now they seem to be like, okay, we have clear issues. Let's fix our issues. They're just hoping that's the, the guys we have will work out. Right, right. I think, um, like, if you if you look at their one of their needs, you know, last year, top needs and filling – Zach Wheeler's shoes. They did so with two back-end low-tier guys and Rick Porcello and Michael Walker. Look, the fact that the bullpen wasn't a weakness in 2020 and they went out and got one of the best relievers on the market uh, is a great sign to me. I mean, that, like you said, yeah, that's a great sign that they're actually intent on on actually upgrading these these positions and not not spending being as cost-effective as they can and hoping that these are just upgraded with, with those moves, hoping they get lucky. No, they're actually going to try to go out there, which should excite fans for, you know, the top needs. I mean, starting pitching and catching, obviously. Um, but, hey, if, they, if that's what they have in, in store for, you know, for the bullpen, I think I think it's fair to say that they plan to be aggressive, as they should, with their starting pitching and, and catching. Yeah, I know you brought Marcus Stroman earlier, and that's not the, really the first move of the offseason. He took the qualifying offer, and he cited the Steve Cohen factor as a big reason why. And was this a surprise that Marcus Stroman actually took this, considering the starters have done decently well in the free agent market to date? 
I was surprised. Yeah, I was surprised. I think when you when I broke it down before, like when I was thinking about it and trying to analyze it myself, you go on one hand, okay, the market is not going to be great this year, right? Like that's understandable. We knew that. Everybody knew that. Um, but on the other hand, Marcus Stroman, I mean, if you look at, okay, Trevor Bauer and then Marcus, I mean, he's the, he was the second best starter on the market if he would have, you know, rejected the qualifying offer. And so I still think, like, I'm sure he would have gotten a multi-year deal with, with solid, you know, AAV somewhere just because there's some team that needs to upgrade its starting pitching that would have given him that just by virtue of, hey, Trevor Bauer is going to cost too much for us. What's the next option? But, and especially because, you know, he didn't, Marcus Stroman didn't pitch this year. So I think by taking it, 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 it's a bit risky because I mean, I, I think like, you know, what if he gets injured next year? What if something happens? I still think he would have had a good market this year, but I think it's just a sign of him betting on himself, which is, which is also good because with a good year this year, um, and obviously being in a rotation with Jacob deGrom and, and other great pitchers can help, but with a good year this year, he can definitely boost that his market even more. Um, but I was a little surprised because he had always, you know, even if he said his mind wasn't on free agency, he had multiple times in the past mentioned that he was looking forward to it because he wants to be settled instead of this year to year life that baseball, unlike any other professional sport gives you because you're on year to year contracts for the first six years of service time. Um, he wanted to be settled and he was looking forward to settling down somewhere, putting down roots, you know, having a multi-year deal where he could kind of finally relax and sit back in, in the same city for you know, multiple years, hopefully. Uh, so from that standpoint, I was surprised. And then just because I, I mean, maybe, you know, like it's obviously a smart business decision. His decided talked about it a lot. Obviously he thought about it. It's his decision, but I was surprised because I do think he is good enough. Uh, I know there are Marcus Stroman haters out there, but I do think he is definitely good enough to have, earned a multi-year deal of you know of, of solid money somewhere just because of, he was the second best starter on the market yeah another i'm curious about the with the new ownership group is their approach to extending their own guys because it felt like once the Wilpons got burned by a few bad contracts they were really hesitant to give anybody any significant money and i know there was talks that basically had their arms twisted to extend jacob to Grom a couple of years ago now you got a couple of guys coming up who are going to be freeze after next year, Michael Conforto, Noah Syndergaard. Do you think they're going to make any serious runs extending anybody this winter? Yeah, uh, this winter, I'm not sure, but I would I would say the first one goes, obviously the first talks go to, to Michael Conforto, and I would say, you know, if maybe they're in talks this winter, but I think there's just so much flux in terms right now in terms of hiring a GM and, and trying to improve the 2020 run roster that I would – if I were to guess, I would expect those talks might begin in, in spring training or, you know, at least, you know, when the new year starts, when there's a little more stability um, within the front office and within the organization. Um, but I do think that they're going to make a run at, at some point in the next few months and at least having starting to have those conversations because, look, that's a guy that homegrown, homegrown especially, but homegrown outfielders like that don't don't come around too often. And um We've seen like over the market the past few, it's, it's tough. Like in terms, if you're going out to get a right fielder and, and free agency, it's, you know, it's, and I mean, he's, he's pretty much the entire package. He's, he's got it all. He's improved his game year to year. He had, you know, some major struggles early in his career after that world series run, but he's gotten through those. Um, and, and look, I think this year he showed that, that he could reach the next year. Now, can he do it for 162 games? 
we'll see. But I would think that this new ownership group is going to be intent on on keeping him. Noah Syndergaard, I can't see those talks starting yet just because, you know, with the injury, you don't know. There's just so much uncertainty as to how he's going to finish the recovery and then how he's going to perform when he actually returns. Um, so that's going to be intriguing. But I, I have to think that, and right after feeling, you know, the, the starting pitcher, catcher needs, you know, looking at maybe upgrading in center field and then pushing Nimmo to, you know, a corner, um, that, you know, one of the first, the first in-house on the roster talks are going to be about, you know, can we extend this guy? And I would assume that it's a little early for maybe not early for, for just the talks to begin, but for them to intensify, I would say probably the new year. Yeah, it makes some sense. So let's focus a little bit on the free agent market. Right now I'm talking to Justin Toscano of NorthJersey.com and the record. And let's play a scenario here. Let's say Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson walked up to you, kind of like what Steve Cohen did on Twitter to the fan base and said, Justin, we're making our free agent, <laughs> we're making our free agent uh, checklist here. Who should we put on the top of the list? Oh, man. I think I, I would still say, depending on the money, Trevor Bauer. I know people have said, I know people have said, well, he's, you know, he's had two good seasons and one of them was, you know, basically 11 starts and yada, yada, yada. And then, and here's my thing with that. If he's going to, would I give him Garrett Cole money or anything close to that? No. Would I give him Strasburg money? I'm not even sure about that, but it depends on the market and how it is this year and then what people are willing to give him. But I look at it from, from this standpoint, I mean, I think he and JT Real Muto in my book are one A and one B, but I think with J- a guy like James Mechanic catcher, I think you can like sure there are other starting pitchers, but I think the best way to a title is through your starting pitching, especially with this group, because I think you have the offensive core, you have like that firepower, but I think you need another great top of the line pitcher to go along with. DeGrom and Stroman, and then, you know, Syndergaard, when he returns, I think that would make the Mets, I don't want to say unbeatable because that's pretty much an impossible word to use in in, in baseball terms, but I think that would make them a very, very tough out come October, you know, if they were to get there. Um, So that's what I would say, Trevor Bauer. But you have to, it's contingent on on the money. I do understand that. Like, he should not earn nearly as much as as Garrett Cole. and, and I don't know, you know, what the the numbers are going to be for him or what, what he's looking for. But I would say, you know, you have to sign another starting pitcher like that. Look at the Nationals a couple of years ago, the Dodgers last year, like pitching, pitching wins it. And, and I think with this team, like this team is well set up from an offensive standpoint that if you had pitchers like Jacob DeGrom, Trevor Bauer, Marcus Stroman going in October, you, you know, you're probably not going to need more than five, six runs, you know, a, a night to do it. I think that sets you up pretty well. But I do see the JT Real Muto case. It's really hard given how bad their catching has been. Um, you know, but I, I just think you can you can upgrade there with, with James McCann. That's that's a good option. Um, but I, it, it's tough. I'm not sure about, you know, because Real Muto is going to want a, a ton of money. I think there was a report a couple months ago from, from a Phillies beat writer saying that he, you know, was looking for, 200 million or, or something like that so that's that's a ton for a catcher and he's a great two-way catcher but i think with the way this roster is constructed i think i'm going to load up on the starting pitching 
if the money is right with Bauer, because I think he's another one who has a lot of those, you know, those naysayers. And I get it. He, he's been good for, for a stretch of his career for a couple of years, but I, I do think he gives you the best chance to, to upgrade the roster a lot, because I think you can do something else with your catching, even though it is an important position, I think you can upgrade there, but to give me the best chance, if I'm, the best and I, you know, I want to win a title. I'm adding another top line starter in there. Yeah, I think that definitely makes some sense. I know they've been sniffing around James McCann. They've been talking to him according to reports coming out the last couple of days. Like, like if the Mets like had their perfect off season, like what do you think it would be? I'm assuming like McCann would be a part of that if we follow the Trevor Bauer plan. Yeah. So if, if it's, if it's the perfect off season, I think the best case scenario is, is, is if they can, I mean, this might be fantasy land, but, you sign Bauer, you sign Real Muto, and then you leave Nimmo in center field. Like, I think I personally enjoy watching George Springer a lot. I love his game. I love how he rises to the moment, as cliche as that sounds, in October. Like, I, I have loved watching that from him, how he's that he's just such a great competitor. Um, but I think, hey, I think, I think Nimmo's got room to grow in center field. Is he a true center fielder? No. Can he improve? Yes. Like, people are writing him off. Like, he's still young. I think he's got improvement there. He, you can you could live with him out there, in my opinion, because he gives you so much in the lineup, and because you're going to have, especially with the DH, you might have more options um, of what to do with left field, et cetera. You've got utility guys like Jeff McNeil, so you can live with Nimmo out there. So my best case scenario is you sign Bauer and Rio Muto, two of those guys, and that to me is is the perfect off season because not only did you add you know a front line starter, but you got the best two way catcher you know in the in the game. And I think those your top two needs are upgraded there. So that to me, if you had the best dream off season, there it is right there, signing two of the big three. Yeah, also brought up the DH is, is interesting because I know there are reports out right now the San Francisco Giants are expecting there not to be a DH because even though both sides could use it, there's this story that it's a bargaining chip and we don't want to give it up for CBA negotiations. If the scenario right. comes up where there's no DH in 2021, like what do the Mets do? Because I think they're kind of banking on it to sort of solve the Dom Smith Pete Alonso first base issue. Right. That's 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 a tough one. I think even as as long as like you know, even back in October, there was a report that that yeah, that the, it wasn't going to be in play for the NL in 2021. I'm not sure about that because, like you said, it's, it's always used as like a bargaining chip, and, and things like that are always used in negotiations, but. Um, God, yeah, that's a tough question because I think, I think if you're the Mets, you're really, really banking on it because it worked so well last year to help you solve a couple of your issues and, 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 you know, in that rotation, especially that they use in the infield and with Pete and Dom. But I think if you're the Mets, what you do is look feasibly, it's, it's, it's reasonable to think the DH, the universal DH will be a part of baseball sooner rather than later. And I think a lot of us can agree on that, um, even if it's not in the game this year. So if it's not in the game this year, I don't overreact. I don't look to trade Dom or, or do anything crazy. What I do is probably, you know, start like they did last year, where maybe, you know, maybe you play Dom in left field um, and, you know, see how it, how it shakes out with Pete at first base a little bit. But then, you kind of you kind of get a feel for hey is Dom's glove going to be eons better than Pete's or did did Pete close the gap with a little bit of defensive improvement improvement over the off season and I think that's kind of how you roll and the way Pete's hitting um, and the way Dom's hitting I think will will give them some clarity too 
But I think it's also reasonable to wonder whether Dom is going to perform like he did last year. Like, was it a breakout season or a breakout 60? You know, like he had a breakout season, but um, there's no guarantees that, that either performs like he did last year. So I think the best answer to that is that you'll probably see more of, of Dominic Smith in, um, in left field, especially because McNeil should play a lot more second if they, if they don't get anybody there. So that kind of frees up some left field. Um, but his glove is so good at first that it's such a tough, like I, let's, I, let's just say I wouldn't want to be making those decisions because it's, it's going to be tough because you, they feel they want, they want Alonzo to be a cornerstone of, of that franchise and want him to be there for a very long time. So it's, uh, you know, in an 162 game season, it'll be interesting to see if Luis Rojas plays the same deal like he did last year with the urgency of terms of, he said it, you know, playing the hot hand because while guys may buy into that in a 60 game season, because they know the urgency there, I'm not sure about 162 games. So he's going to have kind of a, a balancing act and a tightrope. But if I'm the Mets, I don't, I don't overreact and use Dom as a trade piece or anything like that. Yeah, it's my last question, actually, kind of about the trade market because we heard Sandy say earlier this offseason that, you know, like there's the cost in players and the cost in money, and we've given up a lot of players, so we don't want to be as heavily involved in the trade market. But do you think maybe later on in the offseason, like if they still have a little cash to play with and the price on some of the bigger guys have gone down, do you think they could re-explore some of these big trades, or do you think that might be a let's just see how we're going with our guys and see if the summer if, if the big fit is out there? I think they could explore it like January, you know, in January, see how the off season has gone, see how things lined up with the bigger free agents. And then they might explore, but I'm not sure it would get super serious because like Sandy said, and I do believe him when he said they have given up a ton of talent and you look at the, the upper minor league levels. I mean, it's almost like that's why signing Steven, you know, signing Steven Matz was such a big deal because he is a crucial depth piece. Because you look at the upper minors and they don't have, you know, arms who are really major league ready, you know, quality arms who are major league ready like they did David Peterson. And then you, they've just lost so much in that organization over the past couple of years um, that, you know, like I get it. Like it would be tough to, to trade, you know, core pieces. And, and guys like, and then as well as guys like Andre Jimenez or, or even, you know, prospects because they did, you know, one thing Brody did do well is that he and, you know, especially the scouting department did a good job of kind of reloading some of that farm system. So I get why Sandy doesn't kind of wants to, wants to be careful with that, but I think they would explore it come January, especially, you know, before spring training say, Hey, cause a lot of these teams, you don't know what the market's going to be like, but a lot of these teams still are going to want to get, you know, like, for example, the, the Chris Bryant's off the market. And depending on the market, if the price goes down, I think it's worth exploring. And I think the Mets, I think their vision, like Steve Cohen and Sandy Olison have said that they will explore those things. Um, but if they feel good about their offseason, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect one of those trades to, to make headlines or to, to push it over the hump. I think they will feel good and go into the summer knowing with what they have if they if they do fill those needs it's basically keep a little powder dry in case they feel like oh we're one piece away in the summer having a really good year right i think so especially because it's hard because like with without the minor league season last year you really like it's kind of a crapshoot knowing how prospects 
not only developed over a year where they really couldn't do much, but are going to develop. So also that the summer, that extra couple months gives you like some time to, to feel out what you have with your prospects. Um, because look, like if you, if a team wants so-and-so added in, you're like, you know, we, we don't, we don't know if he's going to develop much more. We don't like the, the direction he's going in or whatever. We're fine giving him up. Then you have that extra intel in the summer with a few more months of evaluation, especially from spring training and the early minor league season. So I think it's a little safer then too for them. But like you said, yeah, I think, I think it'll be a thing like that where they're going to save a little in the holster just, just in case they're a piece away. Because I really do think with a good offseason, this team should be able to win the division. Like you look at the Phillies, not great, you know, like not a great situation. The Marlins, I don't think they'll do what they did last year. The Braves are still very good, but I think, you know, a well-rounded Mets roster is better than the Nationals right now. Um, so, you know, I, I think they could be in a situation where they really truly are a piece or two away. And you want to save some of that instead of, instead of kind of, you know, expending it, wasting it again after all that has happened in that organization the past couple of years. So then you have to reload the farm system again. It wouldn't be good. I think they're well suited, especially with Cohen's money, to, to make a splash in free agency that they shouldn't they shouldn't need to make one of those Brody blockbuster trades that you make when, when your ownership's not going to pay for those free agents. Yeah, we definitely want to see any more Brody blockbusters for sure. Uh, Justin, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, follow you on social media and keep up with your coverage of the Mets. Yeah, yeah. So my Twitter is uh, Justin C. Toscano, and that, my last name is T-O-S-C-A-N-O. So that's, yeah, I'm on there. And then Instagram is just my name followed by rights. So it's Justin Toscano rights. Um, and I've got some stuff on there, like during the season. So, yeah, but I, I appreciate you having me and uh, appreciate the good talk. All right, Justin. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yep, of course, man. Anytime. here talking Mandalorian once again chapter 14 the tragedy and joining me today somebody I talked to about football bunch also a big Star Wars fan Nick Fred is here Nick how are you hey Mike doing well how is everything going everything's going pretty good I gotta say this season of Mandalorian has been a bit of fun to sort of get me through another round of quarantine craziness I love it I am absolutely loving this season yes and I want to I want to ask you obviously like People who listen to the podcast know, oh, you're a big Giants fan, big football guy. But a lot of people don't know, you are a big Star Wars guy. I'm a bigger Star Wars fan than I am a football fan. I can say that is 100 percent true. I have, I have a Baby Yoda doll in this my house. I have pictures all over. I have every movie on Blu-ray. I have every video game that's ever released. Uh, I don't know about everyone, but almost every video game that's ever released. I have. I am the biggest Star Wars guy there is. Actually, my PlayStation. At the PS4 is the Star Wars edition of the PlayStation. Wow, that's dedication. Yeah, 
I have to also to ask you: Did you do the full deep dive into Clone Wars and Rebels? Oh yeah, I've seen. I don't know if I've seen them multiple times, but I've definitely seen every episode. I've seen numerous episodes multiple times, but I've seen every episode of Clone Wars and Rebels, and I love both those shows. Like, I can like rewatch like memorable scenes from them. How people rewatch like memorable scenes from the movies. I rewatch memorable scenes from those shows, and I absolutely love them. Yeah, I gotta say, this must be a different experience for you being the full-on completionist where you've had seen pretty much every piece of Star Wars media. So, like, when they're making these references to Bo-Katan and to Ezra Bridger and the Grand Admiral Thrawn, they mean a lot more to you than they are to, like, the casual watching the trilogy Star Wars fan. Yeah, I get a lot of texts every Friday from people saying, did you watch it yet? And I say yes. And then it's, it's uh, so how does this guy play in or, or who's, who's this they're referencing or what's the big deal with her? And I, I'm always explaining it and saying, well, this is, you know, this is the story with this guy and, and so on. this is where Bo-Katan comes from. This is why she's here and whatnot. Yeah. I'm sure last week your phone was probably blowing up with the grand Admiral Thawne reference that really blew, blew up the star Wars internet. Yeah, that was, that was really fantastic. And last time we saw him, we went into the, I don't know what you call it, the, the nowhere. So I guess he's out of the nowhere. I don't, I don't know exactly what they ended up calling it at the time of the show, what they what they referred to it as in um, in Rebels. But him and Ezra were stuck in, I, I don't know, like a time loop, or I don't know exactly what it was. So I guess they're out of it. So, I mean, if he's out of it, I'm assuming Ezra is too. Yeah, we've been speculating we'll see Ezra this season on the show. And we got two episodes left to do that. I don't know if we'll make it there, but... Sticking with this show, like how when you well, start- Mike, let me let me stop you right there. If if Ezra Bridger makes a live action appearance, I, I I'm not saying this will happen. And there's there's no chance this will happen. But if he makes a live action appearance, what do you think of Keanu Reeves playing him? I don't think that's where they're gonna go. Oh, that will never happen. But I think that would be the perfect casting. It would be a lot of fun. I just don't think they're gonna go that way. Oh no! Oh, definitely not. But I think that would be he. I've seen a picture of them side by side, and I'm like, wow, that needs to happen. Never will, but that would be fantastic. It would be, but I just feel like Keanu Reeves out of the price range of the Mandalorian. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, name, absolutely. I don't know if you watched much of the Haunting of Bly Manor. The, the name I've been heard is the guy who plays Owen the Cook. Is the guy I've heard mentioned for Ezra Bridger? No, actually, I didn't. I know nothing of that. Yeah, he's the name that's been has been rumored around the internet as the potential uh, Ezra Bridger candidate. Okay, all right. Well, I'm excited to see whoever it may be. Yeah, but if, I, he, if he does make an appearance. Yeah. So before we get into this specific episode, like when this came out last year, and this this was the first Star Wars live action show that came out, how excited were you for this concept? I was very excited, and to be honest, I love season one. Don't get me wrong, but it was just like, yeah, I'm watching it, and I always thought to myself, like. After each episode, like, I loved it. I liked it. But if it wasn't Star Wars, would I like it? And I would said, like, no, I probably wouldn't. Like, I don't know. This is a show about, like, and not that it was about nothing, but I'm like, if it wasn't Star Wars related, like, I don't know how much I'd relate to, like, I wouldn't relate to the show. And I'm like, I don't know if I'd like it. But this season, I don't, I, I don't know. I guess you could say the same thing, but it's so good this season. There's so many references, and it's taking off so much in terms of action, and it's not holding back that I'm like, like I used to, not that I would wait to watch an episode, but you know, back last year I was working in my office, not from home. So I would, you know, I'd get home and watch it when I could, whatever. Now it's as soon as I wake up Friday morning, I'm bringing my work, my laptop to the couch and I'm watching that episode immediately. I've even considered they come out at 3 a.m. They come out at midnight uh, West Coast time. I've considered staying up to watch them sometimes. And I'm like, you know, what, what's the point? I might as well just get some sleep so I'm not exhausted, but. I, I, the, the finale, I'm probably going to do that. I don't know if I can wait for that finale. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with the finale is, like, you're not a big Twitter guy, so, like, it's not like you have to worry about going on Twitter having the episode spoiled for you. You can just get up at whatever time you get up and throw it on there and not be spoiled at all. Yeah, I, I go on Reddit a lot. I'm a big Redditor, and when I go on Reddit, I follow all the Mandalorian, all the Star Wars things, but they all have spoiler tags on them, so unless you click on it, you're not going to see the spoiler, so that's fine. If I, I scroll a little bit in the morning, and then I say, you know what? I got to stop because I got to watch the episode. And to me, the fair amount of time before you have, before, like, when it comes to movies, I don't know what the, the cutoff is. Like, you can't spoil the movie because people didn't see it. But with this show, what I've seen from the uh, from the official Star Wars Instagram page and from some of the other pages, it seems like three days is the cutoff. So, like, if that episode airs, like it always does on a Friday morning. By Monday, if you haven't seen it, too bad. Yeah, that's, that's basically the way I think it was with with Avengers Endgame, where I think, I remember the Russo brothers, the directors, that were like, hey, like, I think they gave us a longer. I think I said, give it, like, I think, like, two weeks before you tell anybody what happens in this. And then um, I unfortunately got spoiled on one of the big plot points going into it because somebody decided to be a troll on Facebook and, and tell everybody that Tony Stark dies. You know, I got um, I got a random message on Reddit from somebody. I, I guess I am in, like, some Marvel subreddit or, or Avengers one. I don't know which one it is. And I must have messaged, like, oh, I don't remember. I must I comment a lot. So I must have commented I was excited or something or can't wait or something like that and someone sent me a private message that said iron man dies and captain cap goes back to live the life he never could oh and and i didn't want to believe it and then at the end i was like oh boy that's exactly what happened yeah i will say like i've told the story in the podcast before but like i know exactly who did this and as soon as that that came true they were unfriended on facebook i'm like that's it you're done Needless to say, though, even when I knew that was going to happen, I still loved the move that movie. Oh, and great. I still like, and great. even knowing he was going to die did not take away from him dying. It was still a great scene. Yeah, I'm not saying it's affected my enjoying the movie. My point was, you know what? Like, yeah. you're gonna be a, you're gonna be an asshole like that. You're you're getting blocked because that's that's not right. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It also didn't really, it, even though I saw it in writing on my screen. I'm not just going to believe some random guy. Like, yeah, I, I had it in the back of my mind. Like, oh, this guy could have spoiled the movie. But even watching it when he died, I'm still kind of surprised. Even though I heard a day before it might happen, it's not like I didn't think of that myself, that he might die. You know what I mean? It's not like it's the first time I ever heard Iron Man was going to die. So it wasn't really like, oh, my God, he's dead. Like, I kind of figured he's probably going to die anyway, considering him and or Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans were both rumored that it was their last film. So I'm like, all right, one of them's going to die, or both of them. So. <laughs> Wasn't that surprising? Yeah, it definitely wasn't. But back to the Mandalorian for a minute. I do feel like this season you mentioned the, the references are definitely picking up. I feel like in a lot of ways, like Mando is sort of the analog for the casual audience, and like all these things are going on with references being made. He's kind of like, what's going on here? I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like it's kind of an analog to what's going on for like your casual fans who have only really watched the Skywalker saga. Yeah, I have a lot. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of friends who, who you know text me and whatnot, but a lot of them are just like. They're like, oh, I love the show. He's so cool. Love Baby Yoda. Like, that's, that's all they know about the show. Like, they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea who Ahsoka was. Like, even big Star Wars fans who, like, who have seen all the movies multiple times don't really know Ahsoka because she wasn't in any of the movies. So, like, my brother, for example, been on this podcast many times. He was texting me, like, questions about Ahsoka. Like, he doesn't know. And I, like, he knows who she is, but he doesn't really know anything about her, her character. And she's like, why wouldn't he train? Why wouldn't she train the child? And I'm like, well, he, she mentions about how there's a lot of fear in him. And she says specifically how she saw that fear take over a fully trained Jedi Knight. That's a direct, a direct, excuse me, a direct 
reference to Anakin. And I'm, I'm telling my brother that he's like, oh, that makes sense. Because it was her pad. It was Anakin's pad one, right? And I'm like, yeah. So like that's stuff that you don't re- even like big fans. Like he's a big fan. He knows the Star Wars. Like even he doesn't pick up on stuff like that. And there's a lot more than just that. Like the dark saber, for example, I would say 95% of the audience at that final scene in, in season one, seeing Moff Gideon with that dark saber had to go to the internet and said, what is he holding? What is that thing? Look at the origins and all of that. Yeah. I think they're kind of in the middle ground there. Like I've not done the full series watching the Clone Wars Rebels, but like, I'm a guy who likes to work on the wiki on the wikis and I kind of take my time like looking up stuff. So like I have passing knowledge, but I don't have the full knowledge of some of these things. Yeah. That's, I, I was similar to that a few years ago. And then I didn't watch Clone Wars when it was out. I didn't watch Rebels when it was new. I watched Clone Wars. I probably like when Rebels just started. And then I watched, I, I watched Rebels as it was going on and caught up and watched the, like the, I didn't watch it live, but maybe like a day later, I don't know. I like, I would download the episodes, but I, um, I basically watched rebels when it ended and I watched clone wars like well after it was already, I guess, canceled at that point. And then they came back and I've loved that too. And they brought it back this earlier this year. That was awesome. But so I, I, a couple of years ago, I was in the same boat as you, but I started doing some more of that. And I, I don't read the books or the comics, but I have a lot of knowledge on them from the wiki and I read like about them and stuff. Yeah, it's just a good good setup here. See where we are heading. We'll go into the episode now. We're going to play the spoiler warning here for anybody who's not seen the episode yet. All right, you have been warned if you have not watched The Mandalorian through Chapter 14, The Tragedy. Get out. Go watch the episode if you care about being spoiled. Otherwise, hang on. Nick and I are going to talk about something that can be a very depressing turn of events for the Grogu fans. We'll see. I think for now, yeah, but I don't think so by the end. I don't think so by the end, but we'll get we'll get start, yeah. we'll get started here. We we'll start at the top of the episode, and I, I we start off on the ship where we basically see Gro, Grogu and Mando. And Mando basically embraces his role of being Grogu's dad to an extent, and it was incredible acting. I think, in my opinion, just seeing like without taking his helmet off that Pedro Pascal conveys like the you know like I want him to do well, but I'm gonna lose this kid soon. You could. The emotion he was conveying without actually seeing his face is pretty was pretty cool in that scene. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hidden um, emotions in that, obviously hidden because you can't see him. But more beyond that, I think there's a lot of him. He has developed strong feelings for Grogu. It's very obvious, and he's they have they have a bond and like a friendship and love between the two of them at this point. But he is still honoring his mission which is to get Grogu to safety get him where he belongs among his own kind and you can see he's trying to convince himself of that he's trying to convince himself that he doesn't have that love for him and he can let go but he he knows deep down when the time comes that he has to let go that he has to send him off he won't be able to and he's trying to convince himself that he could yeah he is and like he sees like feeling disappointed when the when Grogu doesn't take the ball with the force exactly the same way and there's a lot, it's such a trend in this episode, a lot of Mando saying, like, I don't know what I'm doing here, like, I, this is out of my element, this feels like, again, like I said earlier, I feel like this is sort of an analog for us, so sort of like, whereas a lot of the references coming in, he's like, I'm just here, just trying to kick ass and protect this kid, that's all I want to do. Yeah, Mando represents the, the casual fan in the show. <laughs> yes, he really is. The he's casual. just there, yeah. He's a casual, he's a casual character. He has interactions with all of these different characters who have all these different backstories, and he's just the guy they all met who happened to have Baby Yoda with him. 
Yeah, and then this this also takes place on Titan. We see the Razor Crest come in. They see the Jedi Temple structure there. I did think the scene of him flying Grogu like in the air with the jetpack and no, that was a cool visual. I, I I was a little confused the first time I saw it. I'm like, where did he fly from? Did he just jump out of the ship? Where's the ship? I was like, where's the? <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess they landed it. They just didn't show that. But no, that was a really cool scene. That was really like, the stuff that I just feel like. I, maybe I need to watch the first season again. But I feel like the first season was. I don't want to say boring, but the first season just didn't have that like. Like he didn't take. He didn't get on the jetpack and fly away. Like that would be like the coolest scene in season one. And in season two, that's just a normal scene. I feel like there's a lot more going on. And, like, that kind of scene is something we come to expect now. And in season one, that would be, like, the highlight of the episode. Yeah, I feel like the budget... But again, I didn't dislike season one. Yeah. I I did not dislike season one. I'm just saying how much better season two is. Yeah, because I feel like season one was sort of like they were just building the world a little bit and giving you expectations. Now they're sort of, like, taking the toys out of the toy box and started playing with more stuff. Right. It was very... I don't want to say... It almost seems like... This is how it works in all, in all stories. It works like this in most movies and video games and TV shows. The beginning is ultra-realistic, and then as time goes on, you start seeing crazy things. Like, look at the, look at, look at the MCU, for example, and Iron Man 1 just building the suit was, like, such a thing. And then by Endgame, he hit a button on his chest, and he was Iron Man already. Like, you see what I'm saying? You had to build it up in order to get to that point. So I would definitely respect what they had to do in that first season. Yeah, it's, it's also like you see a progression of like the, the threats levels too because the, the villain in Iron Man 1 is just Obadiah Stane sc- screaming at his lackeys about how Iron Man's able to build a suit in the middle of middle of Iraq a, with a box of scraps. Well, in we end up to Endgame, we have the bad guy is basically a universe-conquering titan who wants to eliminate half the life in the world. It's a big jump in stakes. Right, with an army of how many, who knows how many people they were there. Yeah, absolutely, and I do like I did like the setup there on Titan. It was very cool. very cool. Yeah, very cool. Very like Stonehenge in a way with the with the stone in the middle, and I I thought it was really cool. Like the sort of effect that the Force field has when Grogu was trying to communicate with the Force, and very strong, very powerful like tunnel there, basically sort of blocking Mando from getting him out of there until he's done. Yeah, I also noticed when he was when when um, Grogu was like first sitting there, and they were like trying to get it to work or whatever you want to say. Mando's like looking around, like looking for a switch because he, he that's like that's another point you made earlier that he represents like the the casual fan. They're like, all right, how do you get this thing going? What do you do? What do you do? Meanwhile, you don't do anything. It's a force that takes its course. You don't have to. There's no switch you hit. Like you know, like and you could see when it started working, he was thrown back in surprise because that's like wow to him he doesn't understand that and that's and and he's looking for, he's looking for the mechanical way to, to start this thing he's like hey, where's the on switch yeah this is something a point is made on another podcast that Lizzie, i think is very interesting when i get your take on this i feel like this series is kind of like if we went through the star wars like original trilogy with han solo as the main character said luke skywalker and seeing what life would be like from han's point of view yeah a little bit a little bit yeah i, I definitely agree because it's almost like we're following a side character around the whole time, but a very cool side character, which exactly like you said, on solo. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Yeah. And anyway, we have this and then he finally gets the fourth seal going. We don't know how long it take. And then all the super fans geek out when they see slave one fly in and land. And like at that moment, you're like, Oh man, stuff's about to go down. That was a phenomenal scene. But the first thing I said to myself was, 
well, I, I guess we'll, we'll get there in a second when, when we actually meet Boba. But yeah, I, I freaked, I, I freaked out too. I was like, oh my god, because I, you know, we all saw him in the first episode. And again, that's another thing that a lot of casual fans didn't pick up on. It's the same actor who played Django in episode two. It's the same actor who played the clones in episode three. But not a lot of people can recognize him 15, 20 years later almost. So like, you know, I saw him. We all saw him. We all knew. But there's a lot of people out there who didn't recognize him right away. And I'm like, who's this guy? Yeah. But when he came, I went, I was like, wow. You know, we, I knew it was coming at some point. Cause I was like, I was thinking in the back of my head, we saw him in the first episode. It's now episode six. Where is this guy? Like, what's his, what's his deal? Yeah, we, we want to know what his deal is. And, of course, when he shows up, you obviously you don't know who, whose side he's on because in the past, seeing him working with the Empire, you're saying, well, maybe he came, maybe they hired him to go after Grogu. But, no, he's here for his armor, and he's brought a friend along. He brought back Fennec Shan, the assassin played by Ming-Na Wen in the first season. We saw her left for dead at the end of the season, and we finally get that cliffhanger to that last scene of that episode on Tatooine when we see a figure approaching her. For a while, we thought it was Moff Gideon, but, no, it's actually Boba Fett, like, found her and saved her with some sort of cybernetics. And does any character actually die on this show besides Keel? No, it's Star Wars in general. No one does. At this, at this point, I'm, ex- I'm expecting to see Mace Windu in the show <laughs> at this point. But, I, I, you know, I, um, I was very happy that we finally got the answer to who that was. At first, I thought it was Boba Fett back then, like last year. Yeah. And then I said to my, and then after the first episode aired this season, and they showed Boba on Tatooine. I'm thinking, all right, it's got to be. And then I look more into it, and I go, wait a minute. If you watch Chapter 5 again at the end, the, the figure, which we now know is Boba, that approaches her, has a lot of, you can hear armor clinging when he's walking. And then when you see Boba in Chapter, what is it, 9? Is that season yep. 2, Episode 1, Chapter 9? Yeah. Chapter 9, he has no armor. So I'm like, oh, it can't be him because he doesn't have his armor. But that makes no sense. It has to be him. That's basically proving it's him by showing it on Tatooine. I'm like, that makes no sense to me. I, I think it might have been an oversight that he had. Maybe I need to go back and watch both those episodes again to make sure I'm right. But it seems like in Chapter 5, there was armor walking towards her. And in Chapter 9, there is no armor on Boba. So I was a little confused. Yeah, that's why I thought. We, but that's why I thought whatever. I, but that's not a big deal. Like, I really don't care. Like, yeah. if they, if, even if that is a, uh, an oversight, it's not a big deal. Like, who cares? Yeah, it's not a big deal. I mean, that's why when I like based on the shape of the boots and all, I thought it was Gideon for some reason because that was the other name that came in mind. I thought maybe like just went and finished her off with the dark saber or something. But no, she's still here now. She's working with him because he saved her life, and they have come because they want to get Boba Fett's actual armor back. They strike a deal basically of you give me the armor, we help you protect Grogu, and. I feel like this is another common trope in this series that Mando is always a deal maker. I feel like this deal is not terrible considering some of the ones he's ever made. Some of the other ones he's made. No, it was a good deal, but this is where my little thing that I was trying to say earlier that I realized it wasn't the right time for, where I want to say this now. I, that raised a lot of questions to me when Boba showed up and he was asking for Mando's help because he mentioned um, the marshal from Chapter 9. I got to find his name. Um, oh God, I'll never. Yeah, he mentions him by name, which means he knows who he is, right? Yeah. And he has his shit, right? Because we see him flying it. So why didn't he just take the armor from him in the first place? And and if he and if why was he on Tatooine if he has his shit? Did he just get out of the Sarlacc pit? Is that maybe what we're finding out? 
possible. That's our, that's our, I feel like we have to have, there's like a, has to be a flashback with him that we're not, that we may get in the next two episodes. Might explain some of this. Cause I'm a little confused. If he, if he knows who the guy is and we can see, he can clearly still fight, which we find out in the scene right after what we're up to. He can clearly still fight. I, I don't know why he wouldn't just go after him himself. Yeah, I don't know why either. Like maybe the the star, being in the starlight took a lot out of him, and now that he has backup in the form of Fennec, he's like, okay, now's the time to make my move for the armor. Especially that's these, definitely possible. Yeah, yeah. Plus, also, also I wonder where Fennec was in Chapter Nine. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. Fennec maybe was chilling back back at wherever Boa Fett was hanging out on Tatooine, and then like he's. I think he maybe saw okay, like I'm not gonna like screw the villagers here, and then when he sees Mando's take, he's like, you know what? This is my shot. I'm going after this guy. Yeah, yeah, but it was cool to see them and the deal. Obviously, back to the deal with them, it was obviously a good deal for the viewers, as that means we got fights. We got fights. So, and what does he need the armor for, Mando? I mean, he has got his own armor, and they did show some more. It was a little confusing how originally, throughout all of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy when we were just at that point in Star Wars, so I guess about 15 years ago, we were under the impression that Django and Man, and excuse me, Django and Boba were Mandalorians. Then you find out in the Clone Wars that they're not Mandalorians. And now we're finding out again that they kind of are Mandalorians. Yeah, a little confusing. So it's a, it's a little confusing. I don't know if they are or not. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure Django Fett was born on Mandalore. Yeah, I believe, oh, I don't know. I believe that's it's very confusing. But how to how to be a man? Oh, he was born on a planet that's in the Mandalore system, not in the, the sector, not necessarily on the planet Mandalore, but whatever. I mean, it's a little confusing when it comes. At the end of the day, they're basically Mandalorians. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting that he said we'll get. It's kind of skipping ahead a little bit. He points out that this was also his father's armor, which I don't know about you, but I remember the, the actual movie Attack of the Clone. I feel like it was a different shade of coloring than what Boa Fett's armor ends up being. Yeah, no, it was. Attack of the Clones was a silvery blue, whatever, and Boba's is mostly green, a little bit of red on there, a couple of, a couple of you know, da- damaged parts and whatnot. Maybe, um, well, I could see clearly, I mean, he had to have painted it at some point, but he also probably took a lot of the beating because, I mean, it was a long time between Attack of the Clones is 22 before the Battle of Yavin and Empire Strikes Back three after. So there's a 25 year gap between episode two and episode five. So there's a lot could have happened there. Yeah, a lot definitely could have. And I think in turn, we get the fight now. And basically, this turns into a giant game of capture the flag where Grogu is the flag and they're trying to defend the ground from the oncoming stormtroopers. This fight scene was fantastic. We see how skilled the sharpshooter Fennec is. We see Mando trying to get the kid. He gets knocked out, but this is basically a showcase for Fennec and Boba Fett to showcase how badass they are as fighters. Yeah, that was an extremely unbelievable fight. That was awesome for that. For just to keep it simple, that was awesome. And they recently Star Wars has been going for that wow moment, and they've been doing it really well. They gave Darth Vader his wow moment in Rogue One. They gave. Maul his his wow moment in the last season of Clone Wars when he was in that hallway and he so Vader had the hallway scene and he crushed all the rebels in Rogue One. Maul had his hallway scene in Clone Wars where he crushed all the clones with the hallway. I don't know if you've seen that scene. I have not. 
he, he so essentially uh, Soka lets him out of his cell where he's being held and it's during Order 66 so the clones are trying to kill him because they're trying to kill basically anyone who's not part of the Empire at that point and Vader it's similar very similar looking to the way Vader's hallway scene is in Rogue One how he's in the end of the hallway and they're all going nuts shooting him Vader uses his lightsaber to escape that scene you know to kill everyone and he, it's one of the best that's my favorite scene in like all of Star Wars and then Maul doesn't have his lightsaber because he was held captive. He literally uses the hallway itself to kill them. He like he's using the force to bring the walls together to crush them. He takes piece of the wall, throws them at the guys with the force. It's a very cool scene. And then this was Boba Fett's wow moment where he comes in, gets his armor, blows up all, blows up the ships that are fleeing. You know, he has like his superhero landing in a way. That was his wow moment. They've been doing a lot of wow moments pretty much since Disney bought them, really. But and I like it. I, I love the the wow moment. It's awesome. You get to see classic characters like Vader and Maul and Boba Fett get their moments on screen where it's like stuff that you didn't really get to see. Like everyone always, the big criticism on Boba Fett was he's supposed to be so cool, but what the hell has he ever done? Yeah. Yeah. You see him in one, one fight scene and he just falls down a hole. Yeah. They did a good Same thing with Maul. Maul was in one fight scene, he died. Vader, although we see how great of a character and a villain Vader is, in my opinion, Vader's the best character in all of Star Wars. I think the whole story is really about him, but you don't really, you, when, we, when we were first introduced in the original trilogy, you were, he's thought of as feared and and like this amazingly gifted or Sith, Jedi, whatever you want to call him at that point, Sith, but but you never see it. You never see him in action. And then you finally get to see him. And you see him in Anakin, sure. But that's, you know, 20 years ago. But then when you see him in Rogue One, it's, oh, that's why he's feared. Yeah, definitely. I do think, I like this style of fight, especially, like, as opposed to, like, most time, like, Mando's group is trying to attack something. As opposed to him trying to play defense here, that group was pretty cool. I liked the moment there when they pinned Fennec behind the boulder and she uses this large boulder basically just send it down the hill and just crush a bunch of stormtroopers. You have Boba Fett showing off his fighting skills without the suit, with the suit, and the suit, him flying in with the suit, and then, as you said, using the mi- the missile on the jetpack for the first time and basically using it to kamikaze two ships is, like, incredibly epic. Yeah, that was, exactly, that was the epic moment. That's the epic moment of, that, of, the, of the episode. It's the epic moment for Boba Fett, and I think... You may not get the older fans of this, people who were fans of the original trilogy as kids, because to them it's over. A lot of them, a lot of a lot of those people, like once once Episode Six ended, Star Wars ended. But a lot of the people who are still invested in Star Wars, I think Boba Fett has redeemed himself, and he's now what he was thought of. He is that badass character. Yeah, he absolutely is, and this is a great bait, bait and switch by the editors here because they kind of have you thinking, oh, they won, they're, they're running away, Boba Fett kills them all, and then. Boom, out of nowhere. Razor Kest gets completely destroyed by the Imperial Cruiser in the air. I think that, that was probably the biggest shock of the whole episode. So it was very shocking to see. I was more confused as, like, why? But then I realized, and a, a minute later, there's two things that survived that crash. The marble, or whatever it is, the, the piece of the ship that Grogu's always playing with. And the spear. And the and the sphere. Now, there's a reason for both of it. The marble is to show that there's still hope. You're still going to get Grogu back, although this may have been destroyed. There's a little piece of hope left. And number two is that sphere. So I think it's as obvious as anything. When you see when you see Ahsoka fighting in the last episode against the sphere, 
our our final battle this season is Mando versus Moff Gideon, Dark Saber versus Sphere. Be- and that is going to be an epic. That's going to be an epic fight. That's I, I would I would put a thousand ten thousand dollars on that is going to happen this season in the last episode. Yeah, that would be a fun fight. We get it, but we do lose our Razor Crest, and then we realize that at some point, like they realize, oh, we have to get back to the child, and then all of a sudden, Gideon's cruiser unleashes the dark the dark troopers who we saw teased a couple episodes ago. We saw the armor, and now we see them in action. What do you think of getting the dark troopers in live action? I think that was perfectly done because a lot of people I saw all over the internet were annoyed that they didn't see them fight. And I think it's better that way. They come in, they get the child, they swoop out, they're gone. And if you want to see them fight, you wait till that finale because it's going to be epic. You're going to see them fighting. You're going to see Gideon fighting. You're going to see Mando fighting. And then um, I think we can move on to, I guess, what we're expecting to see in that episode and, and the buildup for that episode, which is, which is how is Mando going to a find out? How's he going to know? He has no idea where Moff Gideon is, right? Yeah, and he has no and he has no idea who he's bringing with him. So I think we can we can move on to that now. Yeah, and he has no ship. So for a minute, it looks like he's done. But afterwards, we do get the moment from Boba Fett and Fennec where they say, "Hey, like according to our deal, we promised you to ensure the child's safety. That hasn't been done yet, so we're still with you." So. Basically, Mando hitches a ride on Slave One. They go back to Navarro to meet Cara Dune, and we find out Cara did take out the Republic's offer to be basically a law enforcement officer. They go back to get to have Mando get information about one of the bounty hunters he helped last season, and basically left to get imprisoned by the Republic. They need to jailbreak him. Why do you think they need him? Well, he is capable of finding Moff Gideon. That's why they need him. He is exactly he's how they're gonna find yeah. Gideon. But I will have I do have my one nitpick of the episode. Sure. You know, I mentioned the thing about Boba on why he didn't just get his armor back. But that's not a big deal. I don't really care. Whatever. I mean, that's just a story. It does go a little bit off character for Boba to act the way he did and honor his end of the deal. Maybe he sees sympathy for Mando and the child, but from what I have read about Boba in terms of everything that he has done. Outside of, well, even in the movies, but also in like the comics and the books, he's portrayed mostly as a bad guy. He's usually portrayed as a bad guy. He's portrayed as a, a slimy guy, goes behind people's backs. Seeing him honor the end of the deal is a new thing for him. Now, maybe that's just character development. Maybe that's just him turning, turning his life around, you know, becoming someone else. Like in the Clone Wars, he is pure evil. He is a little kid in the Clone Wars. I mean, he's learning how to become a bounty hunter from a lot of the other bounty hunters. But like, at this, maybe it could just be a turn in character for him, but it seems a little out of place for him to be agreeing to that deal. And again, like I said, it could have just been sympathy for Mando. Yeah, I also think it helps that it's actually a Mandalorian he's helping, and not just some random guy he met on the street, where it maybe he feels like a, a sense of honor to help out his fellow like Mandalorian character. Yeah, that could definitely be it. I mean, again, I say it's a nitpick, but with me, this, this is not a nitpick as in I didn't like it. This is, I wonder why. Yeah. It doesn't mean I have, I have no negative feelings towards it. I'm just like, hmm, I wonder why he did that. Yeah, I would say it's probably, but, I think it's my theory. It's like a sort of like, oh, like Mandalorian to Mandalorian, I'll honor the deal with you. But like, if you were just some random, like former, like smuggler I met on the street, I'd say, screw you and you're out of luck. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, Bill Burr's character, which is, which is Mayfeld. Yeah. He, he's needed to find 
Indians cruiser. And he's and I'm sure that'll be his role on the team. Is going to be helping them locate him. Yeah, for sure. And we do also odd though odd because I read articles like in the summer that Bill Burr was not returning to Mandalorian, so I was a little confused to see him. You know, pretty much confirmed to come back now at this point. A little odd. It's not confirmed though. I mean, they could because could be we go there, we need somebody else, and then they somebody else. It is not confirmed, but I would. It's definitely not confirmed, but I feel like it's. Almost definitely. I mean, you're right, though. There's a small chance. Yeah. And we do end the episode. We see we go back to the cruiser, and we see Grogu basically using the force to mess with some stormtroopers, showing how he's getting going to become powerful. At the end, Moff Gideon basically taunts and says, hey, like, let him just tire himself out. Then they knock him out, and they're going to bring him back to the doctor to basically extract more blood to form more Mandalorians. I think this to form more Snoke clones. Basically, I think we're going with him. Yeah, that scene showed a little bit of dark side in Grogu, too. Yeah. Anytime you're using the Force as attack, unless you're defending yourself, which doesn't look... I mean, we weren't there in the room beforehand. Maybe they were attacking him, but I doubt it. Most likely, they were just play, um, holding guard. So he that is a little bit of a dark side fall for him. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination he's going to turn into a fifth, but um, he that was a little bit of dark side Force for him, and yeah, they're going to keep trying to get the blood from him, but we've learned in Legends, which I guess is, is not canon, so you can't, you cannot use this as a reference point on anything, but in Legends, you learned that Force-sensitive blood does not create Force-sensitive beings. So if that it holds up in the canon, then Moff Gideon is wasting his time because I think he's power-hungry and wants it for himself. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. That's basically the end of the episode, but we do have some points that we can look forward to here, which I think is... Number one, I think we do have a clear setup here of what's going to be our last two episodes. I think we're going to end up with episode seven is Mando, Boba Fett, and Fennec basically trying to break this guy out of prison to try and get the crew together and sort of form the team to go get Grogu. And episode eight is going to be our big battle. I would be shocked with anything other than that. I think you're going to see a little bit less of breaking out and a little more building a team. But yeah, I think you're definitely right. That's exactly what's going to happen in the episode. But I think there's going to be a lot more focus on building the team. Yeah. So I think there's a chance. I don't. I don't think a high chance, but there's a chance you get Ahsoka and Bo-Katan on the team. I don't. I don't think they'll be on the team, but you have to leave that opportunity open, that possibility. And then you also have. Well, let's you have uh, Bill Burr's character Mayfeld. Yeah, let's, that go, that. let's go through the team for a minute. Let's go through some options here because obviously Bill Burr's character. We think, yeah. we think we think he'll be on there. We'll put we'll put him on the squad. Yep. Oh, we got to throw, you know, throw Fennec and Boba and Mando, obviously. That's that's sort of And then, is Kara's going? Or you think she's staying on tomorrow? I think she'll be there with them, and I think Carl Weathers, Carl Weathers' character, will be there with them as well. Okay, so that's we're up to. Six. I do have a, I have a hard time with names. I have a really hard time with the names because they're always so ridiculous in Star Wars that it's hard for me to pick up on, especially in the TV show. Because yep. a lot of the guys are only in the show for one episode, so it's hard to remember the names. But we can, we can. We can discuss. We we know who we're talking about, but yeah. those four definitely. And then other guys that could be on the team. You could have Ahsoka. Yeah. You could have um, Bo-Katan, Bo-Katan yeah, and her, Sasha Banks, and yeah, her her Mandalorian crew. Yeah, which which involves Sasha Banks, which I still think is very weird that they had a wrestler on there. But whatever, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Do you, um, do you think I, get, I heard rumors? Do you think we're getting? We're getting I heard rumors. Yeah. Do you think we're getting Olafon back? Do you think they're getting Col- Cobb Vanth to come back? Do you think he's just hanging on Tatooine the whole time? They could get him. I mean, a lot of times it seems like in this show, 
there's a lot of episodes that go by and people are very judgmental and jump the gun right away and go, oh, that was a filler. I didn't like that episode. It was just a filler episode or what was the point of that? And then a lot of those characters come back. Yeah. And it's like, oh, maybe that wasn't a filler. It was important because it built this or it built that or it showed how their relationship grew. And uh, you got to give these shows, any show really, but you got you to give patience and you got to let them on, gotta let the show unfold. Cause looks like that episode with Bill Burr that we thought was a filler episode actually had some sort of background to it because it showed how he can, he's able to locate uh, Imperial ships. And now it looks like he's going to be doing that for them. It seems like the, oh, I will say the frog lady episode probably was a filler, but do you think we'll, get the, the ones, do you think we'll get her? Because I feel like they love that character. I would love to see frog lady back. I just don't think she can help. <laughs> She's good with tech though. We, I, did, I, we did see that she was able to hotwire a robot real quick. I mean, she can stay on the ship, be like a C-3PO. Yeah, she, maybe she can help them hack in some systems. Maybe like a 3PO R2 mix. You can yeah. hack some systems like R2 and then stay on the ship and tell, tell them to come back because there's danger and be like 3PO. Yeah. I, I think... But I think... I think you're going to get a chance of Ahsoka and Bo-Katan and I think... I, I always, I, this guy, I'll never remember his name. I want to see that guy again who said, I have spoken. The one from the early in the show. He would be... I just think like he was a, he seemed like he was going to be a big character in the show and I haven't seen him since. Yeah. He's one of the few they have not brought back. I feel like they usually tie everybody, especially now that we brought Fennec Shan back from the dead. Yeah, no one dies in Star Wars. I wouldn't be surprised, like I said, if Mace Windu comes back. Well, we had two deaths last year. We had Keel die and we, mur- and we killed the droid, IG, the IG droid. Yeah, I mean, if it's, I, I don't know exactly how this works in the Star Wars universe, but you can just rebuild the droid, no? You can rebuild the droid. I, like we're not. So Keel is dead. He's not. He's not out of it. Yeah. The only droid I think who's actually dead yeah. is K two S O from Rogue One because that planet is gone. Yeah. Well, Rogue One, everyone died. But yeah, because they died and that planet also blew up, so there's yeah. no chance they survived. And I don't want to see any Rogue Two with Jyn Erso magically surviving. No, they're dead. What about Please. the what about the what about the Rogue One prequel series? Come on, you're interested in that. Yeah, I, I, Rogue One was maybe my favorite Star Wars movie. It's, I loved it. I absolutely, I saw it five times in theaters. Wow. I saw it three times in a row opening weekend. I saw it Thursday night, then Friday night, then Saturday night. And I must have went like a week or two later. I don't know. And then again, I loved that movie. I was I thought it was so good. I saw it with my friends on Thursday. We always go to the opening nights together. And then I went, I want to say with my dad on Friday and then my brother on Saturday. Yeah. For whatever reason, they couldn't go on the same night. So I was like, I'll go both. I don't care. Yeah. I loved it so much. And I, I love that movie. So I'm really excited. You get a little bit, I'm a little confused because Rebels kind of runs at the same time as that Rogue One prequel series is going to run and none of those characters were there. But it's just another, it's just another point of view to a, a similar time period. So I'm excited for it. I, I like Cassian as a character. He seems like he was really determined to take down the empire as if it was personal to him. And he said one, at one point in the movie, he said he'd been in the fight since he was six years old. I think he's supposed to be about 25 in the movie. So he's pretty much always been against the empire. So I'd like to see like, maybe they have a little flashback on why he's so anti-empire. I know most people are, but I'd like to see why, for example, like exactly. And anything I would assume K2SO would be in the show and he was great. Yeah. So I would love to see more of him. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, honestly, that movie's very underrated. I think it's far better than I think, I think, honestly, any of the sequel trilogy. I was, that was, like I said, one of my favorite movies. I loved that movie so much. I thought it was so good. It built up so much. The music was fantastic. And it's actually funny because that was the first Star Wars movie ever that wasn't uh, John Williams. Nothing against John Williams, but that, that movie, that music was incredible in Rogue One. And, um, it was just, it was built up so well. And it was like, everything about it was so cool. I just, I thought it was such a good movie. I loved it. And I'm, I'm not really a big fan of the sequel trilogy. And, and that was like, I was like, wow, like, I forgive any of the sins that I, or, 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 that the sequel trilogy did to me as a Star Wars fan. Like, like I can say, a lot of people will say I hate the sequels. I hate all the new Star Wars. No, I'm glad Disney bought Star Wars because we got Rogue One, because we got Mandalorian, because we got Rebels. Like I, overall, I'm glad. Even though I didn't like sequel movies, I'm still glad that they purchased it because we got to get some of that other content. Yeah, I mean, I took a dunk on the Rise of Skywalker last year on this podcast. It was so bad. I think it was the. I think I don't mean this to be funny. I really mean this. I think it was the worst movie I ever saw. It's right up there. It's up there for me. Like, I will say this. I think I put episodes one and two behind it, but not by much. I think nine actually was the worst movie I ever saw. And I, it doesn't mean I, I, I didn't, I did hate it, but like, I actually kind of had fun in the theater. Like it was at least a little entertaining, but it's it was like, absurd. It, was, it was really bad. Yeah. It was just filled with plot holes, a bunch of strange choices, like. There were points it was where... the first half hour was so unbelievably rushed, and yeah. I say this all the time to my friends, and we all laugh about it. Star Wars is a, they're, they're they're multi hundred they're like they're half million dollar half billion dollar movies in terms of like production costs, like some of the biggest production cost movies ever, right? Yeah. They literally said in the movie, in the last movie, this is the finale of Star Wars, as, as at least as what we've been told. But this is how it all wraps up. They literally said it was a line. They had to sit around a table and they had to say this line and table reads. They had to write it. Someone had to approve it. They actually had a character say, somehow Palpatine has returned. <laughs> they couldn't even explain it. They actually said that. I, 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 that was the most absurd line I've ever heard in my life. They didn't even know how. They were like, yeah, somehow he returned. They didn't even care to like tell us in, in the movie yeah. how. And it was, it was unbelievable to me. I, I mean, they kind of explained it with the clones and all that, but like the fact that they said that somehow Palpatine, I'm sitting here like, yeah, somehow he did. I mean, it's, it was not good. I, I, yeah. I mean, people, you can, I think people can disagree when it comes to seven and eight. Some people liked, people didn't, whatever. But like, I, I just, I, I, I don't like eight. I really dislike eight. But if someone does like it, I'm not going to say they're wrong. And like argue with them as just an opinion, but nine, I, I can't, I can't respect the opinion of someone who thought it was good. No, it was like a mishmash mess. I mean, like the stuff that like literally made no sense. We had the whole all of a sudden that Palpatine's alive. He has this massive fleet. He's building in the middle of nowhere, and at the same time, Lando shows up just to sort of be the like the random guy who goes and cross the galaxy span of like ten minutes and gets an entire fleet to show up and fight the. Fight the fight the Sith fleet. It's like made no sense. Yeah, I was really disappointed in that final scene too. They tried to do like an Avengers Endgame. This is like the third time he brought up the Avengers, but because it's so similar in that it's such a it's a big universe with both with a lot of movies. But they tried to copy it in that final scene with the big fight against all the rebels versus all of the 
or the first order against all the resistance in the New Republic. It that's not no, they completely failed. Like the way you do that is it, it, like an end game. You had everyone who's anyone in there. You had Ant Man, the Wasp. Like you had the Wasp show up. You had you know you had Pepper Potts show up. You had everyone was there. Howard the Duck was in the background. If you look closely, yep. like everyone was there. And then in the Rise of Skywalker, it was Lando and Wedge. That's it. Lando, Wedge, a couple of randoms we met in episode nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People we met along the way, like not even like like what would have been nice. Maybe I'm not saying like I'm not going to write the movie. That obviously they know more than I do. If this movie came out years from now, put in all the characters from Rebels, or at least the ones that are still alive. Put in characters, you know, I know probably some of the clones from the Clone Wars, like Rex is probably dead at that point, because at that point he'd be like 120 years old, but put in characters that we recognize from the cartoons and the TV shows. Put in Mando, like... Ahsoka. Put everyone in. Yep. Ahsoka, yes, everyone. That would make the... I know you're going, you're going for that epic battle at the end where it's all of the good guys take on this super villain, unbelievable bad guy, Thanos or Palpatine, whoever it may be. Put everyone there yeah i think force and 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 the force ghost too like when same situation when ray said i'm all the jedi you hear their voices they should be behind her as ghosts yeah it made like there were so many wasted opportunities that movie just such a disaster because i think the whole thing was just poorly handled by disney just because like the whole thing of having three different directors was was a dumb idea because none of them wanted to follow the same vision they all had their own ideas and then yeah, they had no plan going into the trilogy at all. No, they made Episode Seven more as a reboot than a sequel. Yeah, Seven was basically a copy of Episode Four. Then Ryan Johnson comes in, does his own thing. Some people loved it. Craig's loved it. Fans hate it. And then they they said, "Oh no, we don't like it. How the fans like this?" They bring JJ back for nine. Basically, hey, say, hey, ignore what happened in eight. Just do what you were playing to do, and just finish it up however you want. Because Colin Trevorrow backed yeah. on us. Yeah, he had creative differences, and he backed that exactly. They had no plan at all for the trilogy, no plan at all for the series. It was so, to put out a reboot, yeah. and and oh no, we got to make two more of them. Yeah, sell tickets, make money. That was basically the idea behind those. Yeah, and it's disappointing. I, I really say this all the time to my friends too. We talk about Star Wars a lot. We have a lot of kind of talk, Star Wars talk, but I was really disappointed in that. I went to I've been to I went to opening night of all five of the Disney Star Wars movies like the Thursday night you know like opening night in the IMAX theaters whatever Force Awakens was a blast I'm not saying I loved the movie at the time I loved it looking back you're right it was a copy of Episode Four I don't really like it but at the time I loved it when I first saw it that night was like magical it was there the theater was packed beyond belief there were lines of hundreds of people waiting to see it. It was like an event. I saw people from high school that I haven't seen at that point in like six years, and they were waiting on the line. It was an epic event. Even the last gen I was, too. But then when I saw Solo, the theater was a quarter full. No one was clapping, nothing. Like, I'm used to like these big events. Like, when you go to opening night, it's a big event. Like, when right. I, I, like, Force Awakens, when you first see Han and Chewie on the Falcon, people went nuts when yeah. you first saw, you know, all the characters. And then, I saw Rise of Skywalker. The theater was about half empty, half full, probably more empty than full. They didn't show any previews. My friends are getting popcorn, whatever, like getting drinks. I'm sitting down because I, I was either full or whatever. I, I didn't, I didn't get any popcorn. I'm watching it, and all of a sudden, it just starts. There was no previews, and I'm texting them like, "It just started," and they're like, <laughs> "What? You're lying!" It just come, it just started, and I and they rush in. I'm like, well, they missed the first five minutes. They missed the whole scene of Kylo on Mustafar. Yeah, and I'm like. 
yeah, this is what happened. And they're like, what? And I look it up and I'm like, and I look up on the internet, apparently some theaters didn't even show previews because there weren't enough people in the audience. They thought it was a waste of time. Yeah. I don't know if that's a lie. I don't know if someone just made that up, but like, I'm like, what? This is the finale of Star Wars. There's no one here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. I walk in the theater and the, like when I went to the theater for Force Awakens, when you give your ticket to the guy, like he knows you're seeing Star Wars. When I went for the Rise of Skywalker and for Solo, they're like, uh, what movie are you seeing? I'm like, Star Wars. <laughs> what? Yeah. Now that's, that's Avengers territory. Cause now people like the Avengers movies are like that. Like I remember going to Endgame, like on, I think. Yeah, me too. Second, I, saw, I saw it on the Friday night. I couldn't go on the Thursday for whatever reason. Yeah, same, same, I think. same here. I went on the Friday night and like the theater was popping and everything. Like when, Cap catches Mjolnir, the theater explodes when all the Avengers are coming out of the rings and you, you, you hear Cap. I need, say, I need a favor from you. Yeah. I need a favor from you. Yeah. I, you just pronounced it. I can't. You got to say it slowly for me. How do you pronounce Thor's hammer? Mjolnir. Mjolnir? Mjolnir. Mjolnir. I'll never get it. I don't know. Yeah. It's like M and then Yol, like, like Yol, except for like, like Yol, except without the U. But yeah, it, it used to be, Star Wars used to be like that. Yeah. I don't remember, I wasn't old enough when the prequels came out to know if it was like that. At least episode one probably was, because it was the first one in a while people went to. But like seven and seven was like that. Eight was kind of even like that. Like even when eight, even in eight, I know a lot of people, a lot of fans didn't like it. I'm one of them. But when Yoda showed up, like the crowd went nuts. Yeah. When yeah. Nine, nine, when Lando showed up, there's like three people going, hey, look, it's Lando. Yeah. <laughs> Like you can like I don't it was just, it was not the same it was not the same at all and I was disappointed by it. Yeah, I I am too because this franchise has so much potential. I mean, you've seen it in the video games and like that's my hope because you know they're gonna make more movies. They're not gonna let this cash cow die, especially after Mando's success. No, no, no way. I my hope is that we don't do anything named Skywalker for a very long time. Just explore more corners of this universe because the universe is fun. Like I would like to see that. So are you interested in? I've heard a couple of things, a couple of ideas in my too. Are you interested more in? I heard like old Republic, like way back, like side stories, whatnot. Or are you more interested in? What if they just made a completely new galaxy with completely new characters and no references at all to the original? So the originals are prequels or sequels, which which would you rather? My idea for a movie trilogy, and this is what I've said before on this podcast, I've said also to John Stanko on his own podcast. I don't remember, know if you remember the Nice Deal Republic video games. I feel like that's fertile ground yeah, yeah. For, for, for a trilogy because you're far enough away. So, you so mean you're talking way back? Way back. Is Yoda in there? Is he alive? No, this is like, in the, if you ever played, you ever played the Nice Deal Republic video game. No, no, I have. I'm just not asking you. Like, is this? Is this? Are you saying 900 years ago? Because you're Are you saying thousands of years ago, like the old Republic? Thousands of years ago, like when that game was set, like way before any of this. Okay, okay, okay. So way before anyone. So yeah. Yoda is the oldest character in Star Wars. Is not even a thought yet. Correct. Okay. I think that's the way you go because it, it's a fun element. People have played, haven't played the game. It's a great twist in the middle of the story that that sets up very well cinematically. You can make. Just the first one to a trilogy, you can fix the problems of the second one because that game got rushed through development to try and be, get out for Christmas, but there's stuff there. I think you have only one character in Star Wars canon at this point who would really be a part of that, and he wouldn't be a main part of it. He'd be in the background. At some point, you have to reference him, though, and start Bane. Yeah. He's the only Bane one. And he, 
Yeah, that's it. And I like I like that idea. No, I'm not I'm completely with that idea. I don't really know where I want them to go with it. I just I just know that recently whatever they put out, you know, besides those those three sequel movies I really like a lot. I I like Solo. I thought Solo was a piece a pretty fine movie. I didn't love it. I didn't have any complaints with it though. Yeah, Solo And I as I said I loved Rogue One and the Clone Wars and Rebels. I loved it. Yeah, Solo was just underwhelming. It was like it was like kinda like when you went in there like, did we need this? And then you watched you're like wasn't bad, like, but not. Yeah, exactly. Like, I went in. I went in there thinking, "Why am I watching this? This is gonna suck." And I left. I was like, "That was bad. That was pretty good." Yeah, that's bad. And that's a low bar for Star Wars to be clearing. Yeah, and that's why that theater was empty. I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of stuff on on the internet and friends talking like, "Oh, they should make a series about whomever." Or a movie about him. I think like I see people all the time, all the time on the internet saying that they should make a movie focused on clones, yeah, like the five o the five hundred and first Legion stuff like that. And I always say to myself, people didn't see a movie about Han Solo. No one's seeing a movie about a group of random clones. Yeah, that's what people don't realize. Like if you're walking out of there and you're feeling like you're I'm walking- gonna see it, yeah, but is a casual fan gonna see it? No way. Yeah. It's like when you're walking into Ant-Man for the first time, you're like, okay, this sound, this is a Marvel movie. I go see it. And you're like, oh, that's okay. You should not be doing that with one of your most popular characters of all time going in. Eh, it was good. Yeah. I did. I, I wish they made a sequel to that, though, and I can see why they're not, because people didn't really watch it. Yeah. But the way that movie ended and showing how Maul was still involved with the crime syndicates at that point, because that's a heavy part in the Clone Wars, is Maul getting involved in the crime syndicates. And that's where the Darksaber comes in and that solo is very related to the Clone Wars in that sense, but that would have been cool to see. Maul is like the main villain of the crime syndicates in a solo two or whatever, and seeing maybe Jabba the Hutt and Boba Fett a little bit, like that would have been pretty cool. And I think they were planning on doing that, and people saw it, but people didn't really see it. Yeah, once it bombed, they kind of gave up on that. Yeah, would have been nice. I would have liked to see it, but I understand why they didn't. Yeah, for people who are interested, I will also link in the show notes to my review of Episode 9 with John Stanko last December, and arguably that was a year ago, but, like, this franchise, this franchise as a whole is much better off since it's going in the Mandalorian direction than in the, the feature film direction. It's because of because of two men. Well, John Favreau, you got to give him credit for creating the show, but Dave Filoni yep. has brought Star Wars back. Yes, he has. Even watching, even watching The Clone Wars, the final season, I know you will watch it. I know you, you haven't watched all the episodes. I think you've seen, you've seen a couple. You, I know eventually you will. That last season, it's split into three arcs. The final arc is like a four-episode arc. That's basically a movie when you combine those four arcs because they, they pick up right where the last one left off. And it runs it runs side by side with Revenge of the Sith. So when there are scenes in the movie that are happening, and they reference them, they reference those scenes in the show. And it's fantastic. Like you see a table, there's a, there's a meeting in episode three where they're all around a table and they're talking about how they're sending Obi-Wan to take out Grievous. And that exact scene you see from another point of view in the Clone Wars. And it's basically just Ahsoka's point of view throughout episode three. And it's phenomenal. Yeah, definitely going to be some fun. And that's all Dave Filoni. Yeah, that's that's these guys know what they're doing. Honestly, if like they wanted to do like the trilogy, I would give them their set of movies. But for now, I'm happy they're on the Mandalorian. Nick, I'm happy you came on today. Thank, well, thank you for coming on. I also want to thank our guest from earlier today. I talked to Justin Toscano of NorthJersey.com, 
about the Mets, and it's been a fun offseason to be a Mets fan so far. I think I'm going to get a very interesting winter. Yeah, go Mets. I'm a Yankee fan, but they're looking good. People are people are excited. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, we could do this. We could sign this free agent, make this trade, or we could sign these guys, as opposed to last year where, like, Marcus Strong would pick us qualifying off. It would have been it. The whole offseason was over. And it's not only, like, it's not, it's not like wishful thinking. It's like you actually could. Yeah, it's going to be fun to check that conversation out. If you also want to check out my blog, Nikki, I also talked about earlier today, I wrote a blog post about, like, I'm sure you saw the move that that Warner Brothers made putting all their movies on HBO Max next year as, for the first 31 days, as well as in theaters. I talked about what that could mean for the movies on, at the blog, just on the suffering.wordpress.com. I don't think that's going to be a good thing for movies in the long run. No, I don't know if movies, with this, everything going on in the world, I'm not sure if the theaters are going to be, or I'm not sure if that's the best investment, the best the best uh, business to run right now. I don't know what the future holds with them. Yeah, they Hopefully need... Black Widow comes out sometime. Yeah, they, it's supposed to come out in May. This seems like around when all are supposed to be getting vaccines for the coronavirus, hopefully. So maybe that, like, that run of blockbusters will help out, but WB's decision didn't help much. No, not at all. And, uh, and my, my people might switch to that format because even when things are back to normal in this world, yeah, I think people are going to be a little hesitant. Yeah, plus like not a lot of disposable cash right now too. So it's, it's, it's you look at the cost analysis here, thirteen dollars right yeah. for minimum for a movie ticket compared to eleven sixty six a month for HBO Max on a six month deal. That's a great bargain. Yeah, and and the, it's not even that you got. A lot of theaters. I mean, up in Yorktown, it's a little bit different, but I'm, I'm in White Plains. Some of the times I go to the theaters, I go to New Rochelle or whatever. You got to pay to park. You got to pay to park in White Plains. You got to get your popcorn. You got to get your drink. And the next thing you know, you're spending like two people. It's 50 bucks. Easy. Yeah. Easy 50 bucks. Yes, it is. And it's definitely a problem. I'll talk about that in the blog. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering there. You can also check out my earlier episode this week. I talked to Mike Puma of the New York Post about more Mets talk there. So that was also a lot of fun. And you can also leave some feedback and starring to help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Nick, our conversation about stars is going to be up there in just a bit. Sounds great. Yeah, it'll be fun as well. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331 on Twitter. And coming up later this week, we have another episode coming up. We are going to do a fantasy football playoff preview here. Welcome Alex Fasano from Sportsgrid about that. This is the week 14 picks and more. Still, I hope you have a better week than Bears fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.